Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We are no longer slaves. We are sons and daughters of God. We're his friends, yes, but even more so, we have been made the children of of our Father in heaven. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith talks about adoption like this. God has granted that all those who are justified would receive the grace of adoption. Okay, remember that, the grace of adoption in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ. But they are counted among the children of God and enjoy the freedom and privileges of that relationship. They inherit his name, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They are given compassion, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as a father. Yet they are never cast off, but they are sealed for the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Are we excited about adoption yet? This is a great and glorious truth. And as children, as Christians rather of God, we have been made his children. This is a unique relationship in the world though. Not everybody can say God is their father. Despite what those in our society might say, 
I consider myself to be spiritual, but not religious. All religions lead to God. God is everyone's father, or in our current highly offended culture, God is everyone's gender neutral and or gender fluid parent or guardian. But that's not what scripture tells us, is it? Scripture is clear that God is the father of a specific people. Throughout the Old Testament, that is national Israel, what Paul calls in Romans 11, the olive tree. In the New Testament, the nations, those who are not Jewish, are grafted into this olive tree. Individuals from, their, from the nations place their trust in Jesus as their savior for the forgiveness of their sins, and they're grafted in. But in both Old and New Testaments, God is uniquely the father only to those who are descended from Abraham by faith. Now, Paul says in Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29, in Christ Jesus, you, the church, are all sons of God through faith. And if you are Christ's, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. For us to be able to call God our father is a wonderful gift. Jesus explains in scripture that no one comes to him unless the father draws them. That's John 6, 44. Jesus goes on in John 14, 6 to say that no one comes to the father except through him. So do all religions lead to God? Are we all children of the father God? No, no one comes to the father except through Jesus. Being sons and daughters of God is not something that we can demand as a heritage. Even if you happen to be here today, born a natural descendant of Israel. We know this because John's gospel tells us in in chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. That's bad news. It's bad news to know that God can reveal himself to a distinct people and they can so decisively reject him. But there's good news too. The the good news comes in the very next two verses of John's gospel when John tells us, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. God has a distinct people. This adoption as sons and daughters of God is an incredible display of the grace of God. What's our name here? Grace family, right? Grace is a beautiful word. Unfortunately, it's, it's one of those words that gets used so much that we misunderstand or forget what it really means. I remember doing this as a kid. I'd, I would lay in bed and I'd say one word over and over. The, the, the. This is how weird I am. I would intentionally do it because I knew if I said the word over and over long enough, eventually the word I would go, is that even, am I saying that right? Is the even a word? And as beautiful a word as grace is, we use it so much that I think we forget what it means, but it literally means gift. It is a gift. We can't earn God's grace. And here's the thing about gifts. They don't cost the recipient anything. If you have to pay for it, it's not a gift. I always laugh at the offers that you get in email and even, even old school, some paper mail. Just send this in and you'll get a free gift. All you have to do is pay shipping and handling <laughs> Well, I'm not really getting it for free if I have to pay, right? I don't care what you do with the money. If I'm sending you money and then you're sending me something, I'm buying that. That's not the way it is with God's grace. Gifts don't cost the recipient anything, but they cost the one giving the gift. In theology, there's an idea called the order of salvation. The the term is ordo salutis. It's just Latin for the order of salvation. 
And there are different ways of thinking about this idea, but the big idea is this question. When someone becomes a Christian, what exactly happens? Well, a number of things occur in our salvation. Much of it is beyond our ability to wrap our minds around. But what we can gather from Scripture is that it includes these following events. Predestination, election, calling, regeneration, faith, repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. Did you know that when you become a Christian, all those things have happened? That's pretty cool, isn't it? Romans 8 talks about some of these things. It kind of gives a summary of those, and it says, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he has also justified or made right with the Father. And it goes on through the list, and then it says, and that same group of people, he has also glorified. Well, glorification is referring to the resurrection. I don't know about you, but my body does not feel resurrected today. I don't know if you can tell the way my shirt's tugging this, but I, I've got a back brace on today. Like my, my body definitely does not feel resurrected, but the way Romans 8 talks about it is that it is just as certain as the fact that I came to faith in Christ. I know I'm going to be glorified. That's not in some future tense. It's in the perfect tense. That means that it's a, it's a sure thing. We're going to be glorified. Now, I don't share this, this idea of the ordo salutis to impress you with my knowledge. Although, incidentally, did it work if I... Um, but, but truly, though, if, if I were trying to impress you with intellect, I guarantee you, if you have a conversation with me after the sermon today, you'll, you'll learn very quickly I'm not that smart. And there are much smarter, more intelligent theologians throughout history who have poured over the Word of God and discussed these things for centuries. I don't bring this up to impress. I, I bring up these events in the order of salvation to ask this. Which of these things can we as image bearers of God, emulate. Can you predestine someone else? No. Can you make someone else right before God? No. Can you resurrect someone else? No. But we can adopt another human. I'm not primarily preaching that we ought to go out and look into adoption today, although that would be awesome. And I will say this as a sidebar. Wouldn't it be amazing if our church gained a reputation as the church that adopts? If in our community and in our region, we were known as a place where people could go to ask questions about adoption. But the fact that we can adopt another person, it makes our adoption as sons and daughters of God different than those other events that take place in our salvation. It allows us a glimpse into the heart of the Father. So let's consider human adoption for a moment. The average cost of adoption in the U.S., whether international or domestic, ranges anywhere from 20000 to $50,000. That's roughly 65 to 90% of the median annual household income. The average American household spends only sixteen dollars to $17,000 a year for housing. That's the average. So by those figures, the most, the most affordable adoption is approximately 20% more than the average American mortgage for the year. Not to mention the discrepancy between the most expensive adoption and the average mortgage. Now, a lot of things factor into the overall cost of adoption. This isn't even taking into consideration the expenses that continue to occur throughout the life of the child. From basic necessities of food and clothes to medical expenses, college tuition, and so on, adoption is costly. So what did the grace gift of our spiritual adoption cost God the Father? We just read in Hebrews 2, it cost the life of his son. The life of Jesus makes our $50,000 adoption seem cheap. Hebrews 2 says, "In, In bringing many sons to glory, 
it was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Paul writes in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In Ephesians 1, Paul says he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And 1 John chapter 3 says, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. The New International Version, I think, says, see the, the love the Father has lavished upon us. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one. Bring many sons to glory. We're brought to glory by the wounds on the beloved, the only begotten of the Father. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer says this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. He continues, "If, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. And he concludes by saying, Father is the Christian name for God. So what Packer is saying here is that God is not only our creator. He's not only our king or our master. He is those things. He is certainly no less than those things, but even more astounding to the heart of the sinner whose eyes have been opened to his utter inability to save himself is the fact that God has at great cost to himself freely given us the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. When that really sinks in, it should affect everything we do. When we come to understand that we have been made children of God, not because of anything that we can do, but despite us, it should cause us to radically change how we do things. As children of God, we ought to walk differently than before. We ought to have different priorities We ought to be slow to speak, quick to forgive, lavish in our service of others, and generous with the resources that God has entrusted to us, and most especially bold in proclaiming the gospel of this marvelous adoption in Christ. It changes everything when we see God as Father. For God's people in the Old Testament, the primary way that he revealed himself was holy, holy, holy. And that's no less true today than it was then. It will be no less true tomorrow He is holy. Amen? He is utterly unlike anything in his creation. But the the writer of Hebrews tells us that on this side of the finished work of Christ on the cross, Hebrews 8, 6 says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant that he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. God revealed himself in the Old Testament to Moses by the divine name I am, Jehovah, Yahweh, right? But then Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, as he teaches us how to pray, starts not by having us address God by the title of I am, by the name Yahweh, by the the nature of holy, but by one which shows his relationship to us. Father, when you pray, pray like this, Jesus said, our Father. I can't approach a king with confidence. 
I approach a king with reverence. But my father, my father who has given me the privilege of calling him dad, I not only come to him confidently, I come to him rejoicing. Our adoption was incredibly costly. But because of Jesus, we get to call God father. Hebrews 4 verses 14 through 16 says this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, because of that, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Maybe you didn't have a good relationship with your dad. Maybe you didn't have a dad at all. Do you find it difficult to think of God through this lens of father. I do. I I sometimes have difficulty thinking of God through that lens. But I'll let you in on a little secret. Even those today in this room who had a great relationship with their father, it's still comparing a goldfish to a whale. The contrast between the two is enormous. And my prayer for those who didn't have a positive earthly example of a father is that you would be able to see the beauty of our heavenly father in the contrast. God doesn't call himself father so that we would compare him to our human fathers. It's the other way around. He is the standard. We see what true fatherhood looks like in relationship of God the Father and God the Son. This is what it means that we are created in the imago Dei, the image of God. We reflect him, not not the other way around. Have you ever seen the, the full moon on a night when it is so bright that it looks like you could just reach out and pluck it from the sky? It's big and bright. It's so bright you can see everything around you without straining. But you know the moon doesn't produce any light on its own. It can only reflect the light of the sun. Some of us had dads who more fully reflected the glory of the Father. And some of us had dads whose reflection of the Father was eclipsed by sin. But the point is that as dads, we are only reflections we're not the standard. It is our Father in heaven who is, as Paul says in Ephesians 3.14, the namesake from which all earthly fathers derive the name Father. To borrow again from J.I. Packer's Knowing God, adoption is, quote, the highest privilege the gospel offers, higher even than justification. Now, just by way of review, I have probably said the word justification from this pulpit more than any other word. <laughs> justification matters. Packer says the highest privilege of the gospel is adoption, even higher than justification. So if you're like me, that statement makes you pause and say, what? What does it mean? Well, what it means is that we need adoption, surely, but even more so, we need to be made right with God, right? But our greatest need, while our greatest need is being made right with the Father, adoption is a privilege. He doesn't have to do either one. He doesn't have to make us right with him. He doesn't owe that to us, right? Or else, it's not a gift. It's not grace. It's earned if he owes it to us. But he doesn't owe it to us. Packer says to be right with God the judge is a great thing. That's justification. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. And he goes on and he quotes James Buchanan saying, the privilege of adoption presupposes pardon and acceptance. If you've been adopted as a child of God, you, you have been justified. It presupposes that. But adoption is higher. This is a higher privilege than of justification as being founded on a a closer and more endearing relation. That's James Buchanan. 
I want to invite you to consider with me what thinking about our adoption as the foundation for the rest of our lives looks like and what difference it can make in the way we know God and relate to him. Just look at the way Jesus talks about those for whom he would die. In Mark 3.35, he says, whoever does the will of my father is my brother and sister and mother. We read this morning in Hebrews 2 that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Understanding that we've been made sons and daughters of God changes the way we understand Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and following. From moral imperatives to moral indicatives. Instead of do this so that God can bless you, we read that because God has done this, therefore live in this way. Adoption changes the way we live because it changes the reason we live. When we realize that we can't earn the Father's love, it sets us free to reflect him from a place of pure joy. John Piper famously says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Those of you who have kids know the joy that it can bring to see your child imitating you. Well, sometimes it's joyful. Sometimes it's a bit embarrassing. (laughs) But where our earthly father-child relationships fall short, our reflection of our father in heaven is greater. We imitate him not by putting on his shoes. God doesn't need shoes. We imitate him when we love those who persecute us. We imitate him when we walk according to his standard rather than our own. When we as humans adopt a child, we do so because the child needs a family and because we have a sense of calling to do so, but we don't, or at least we shouldn't do it to draw attention to ourselves, right? If you adopt a child and you go around announcing, hey, look at how holy I am. I adopted a child. The average cost of adoption is $20,000 to $50,000. But uh, no big deal for me because I'm just that holy. The Lord, however, does adopt us for his glory. And it's good that he does. He doesn't do it from a place of insecurity. He's not fishing for compliments. He's simply glorified by adopting rebels like me. God has need of nothing. He didn't create you or me to fulfill something that was lacking in him. He has always existed in perfect communion. Father, word, and spirit. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But he created us and adopts us for his joy and glory. And we participate in this glorifying. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The seeing our good works is just an intermediary. We don't do it so people will see our good works. We do the good works so that people will see our Father in heaven and glorify him. Jesus doesn't refer here to God only in royal terms. He doesn't say, walk this way so that people will revere our king. Is it true that we desire for the world to revere our king? Yes. But Jesus is very particular in the language that he uses. He calls him your father. And he tells us how our being his children affects the way we live. We don't live for ourselves. We don't live for our own glory, but for his. Why? I don't deserve glory. And I'm here to tell you, you don't either. We don't deserve to be called his children. And yet he chooses to do so at great cost to himself. He graces us with this incredible gift. 
As I alluded to earlier, in this prayer Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, the first request comes after addressing God as Father. He says, our Father in heaven, what does he say? Hallowed be your name. It took me the longest time to realize that that was not a statement of declaration. He wasn't saying, Father in heaven, your name is hallowed. He was teaching us to ask that. Let your name be feared. Let your name be reverenced. That's what hallowed means. And it took me another long period of time to realize that that prayer isn't first and foremost about others, but about me. Our Father in heaven, help me to hallow your name. As I began with today, and have mentioned throughout, adoption is very costly. It costs Christ his life. This is the concept the Bible refers to in our passage in Hebrews 2 as propitiation. Don't you wish they would just translate those words easier? Propitiation is not only hard to say. Who in the world knows what propitiation means? Propitiation is different than just wiping the dead away. It goes a step further. That's expiation. Expiation wipes the dead away. And it's a good thing. But propitiation doesn't just forgive the debt. It pays the debt for us in the body of Christ on the cross. And then his righteousness is credited to us. He's clothed in our unrighteousness at Calvary. We're clothed in his righteousness at the judgment seat. And the father sees us. He sees the perfect spotless righteousness of his son. As sons and daughters of God, we have been given the fullness of the inheritance of God the Son. 